And we're going to take a look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18, and I would ask you to stand with me, if it's not too much trouble, to, for the reading of God's Word. It's our tradition in Croatia, um, and just want to read God's Word together this morning. Psalm 18. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the name of the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of shale surrounded me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils." He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me. I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands and his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet. And he causes me to step, stand in my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you have girded me with strength for battle." You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have made also my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. 
They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as the head of nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this psalm that gives us insight into who you are. And Lord, I would just pray that as we gather together in your name to study your word, that you would push back the understandings of our mind to give us a greater clarity, understanding of who you are, to understand that you are a mighty God and we can trust you in every circumstance. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Over the past few months, as many of you know, uh, we have lived as a family with a, a bit of tension in our lives. Uh, we all live with the tension of living between two worlds, as it were, a tension between living in this world where God has placed us and waiting for the land of endless day, our heavenly citizenship where we will be with God forever. But as missionaries, something that's become very uh, clear to us uh, over the past few months, more so than ever in our ministry, is that we kind of live between three worlds, uh, both us and our children. We live uh, between the world of our, uh, where we came from, our home, and the responsibilities here, uh, the responsibilities to family and pay, parents, especially as they age. And then we have lived in a, between another world, uh, the world where God has called us to serve and given us a church that we love and people whom we love. And uh, we delight in the ministry that God has given us there. And then we too, as well, wait for that land of endless day. And so we're kind of between uh, three places, and, and, and there's a lot of tension in that. And over the past few months, this particular psalm has been a real blessing to me, a real encouragement. And I hope that as we look at it this morning, it will be as profitable to you as it has been precious to me. In any time of difficulty or or uncertainty, whenever I face personally some difficulty in life or dilemma in ministry, the greatest balm to my soul is to focus again anew at the character and person of God, to meditate on Him and, and who He is. It comforts my heart. It, it clears the fog from the air. It strengthens the will. It, it lifts our perspective and it it draws us out of the pit. And of course, a great place to focus on God and His deeds is the Psalms. The Psalms is that unique book of the Bible, the songbook of Israel, the songbook for the church. But that book of the Bible, which is written to God rather than to man about God. And the expressions of God's character in his dealings with man, the psalms minister to our souls. We identify with the highs and with the lows of the psalmist that were found, that are found in these ancient hymns. And this particular psalm is written by David. It's an invitation to praise God, to give him glory for his great deeds of deliverance. It's an invitation to give God the glory for the great things he has done, to borrow the, the wonderful line from the hymn by Fanny Crosby. David looks back on his life and, and the many times that he has experienced difficulties and trials, and the many times the odds were against him, 
The many times that he was in a very dire situation and he records his thanksgiving and his praise to God for God's many deliverances. If you were to read 2 Samuel, you will find that chapter 22 of 2 Samuel contains this same song. Just a few minor changes. And then it's revised, it's placed um, in the songbook for benefit of the nation. But in 2 Samuel chapter 22, it's placed at the end of David's life, at the end of his reign as king of Israel. And it's interesting to note that in the inscription at the beginning of Psalm 18, that content, that those words are found as verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 22. And I think that's an argument that we need to pay close attention to the inscriptions that are at the beginning of the Psalms. I believe they're part of the original text. David says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, David then, at the end of his life, at a time of peace and tranquility, instead of looking back and exalting himself and building things in his own name, he looks back and he praises God for his faithfulness, for God's victories that he had given to David. Now, in the immediate context of Psalm chapter 22, it follows the, the um, uh, attack or the, the conspiracy by Absalom when David had to flee from Jerusalem, flee from his own son who had turned against him. And God gave him victory again in that, in that situation. So David returns to Jerusalem. And then his, rules out his days, and, and this psalm is found at the end of that account. But in the inscription, David mentions all of his enemies. That would include victories over the Philistines, one very big Philistine in particular. It would include victories over the Moabites, the Arameans of Damascus, the Edomites. And specifically, David mentions that God had delivered him from the hand of Saul. Saul, we know, is the first king of Israel. The king, uh, not after God's own heart, but after the people's own heart, the one that they sought. He seemed to have a good start. He seemed to be a humble man. But in the end, he proved to be power hungry, refusing to do things according to God's instructions and God's design. David had to replace this king. And Saul recognized that God's hand was upon David, and he persecuted David. He pursued David. He tried to kill David on numerous occasions. David had to hide from Saul in a cave uh, on two different occasions, and he had the opportunity to take Saul's life, to take the kingdom that God had already anointed him for, and yet he waited. He waited patiently. He refused to take it by force. He waited for God to give him that kingdom in his time. And so David looks back on all that he had seen, and he records his delight in God, the deliverances of God, the dealings of God, the divine enablement of God, and he makes a declaration about God. And we're going to see that in Psalm 18. These precious words speak to us in our difficult circumstances. Whatever those circumstances may be, we certainly face a different situation than David. We face a different situation from one another. Our circumstances today are going to be completely different than our circumstances are six months from now, a year from now, five years from now. But in this psalm, we see that God is a living and mighty rock. And we can trust Him in all the circumstances of life. We live in a sin-cursed world. We face threats from enemies within and without. As Pastor Shane has preached through uh, Romans chapter 1 and and talked about the sexual confusion and the societal uh, chaos 
It seems that things have almost gotten worse since he preached those sermons, right? As we look at the headlines and, and we wonder, will there be justice for the church? Who is going to defend the rights of believers? We live in a sin-cursed world, but God is a living and mighty rock, and we can trust Him in the midst of danger and uncertainty. Cultural danger, personal uncertainty. So first we see in verses 1 through 3, the light in the living and mighty rock. Delight in the living and mighty rock. Now there's a lot of material in this psalm. We're going to kind of get a bird's eye view of it. Um, We're going to camp out here. We're going to pull aside, look at the scenic overview. We're not going to go to a lot of other verses. But I hope it just challenges you to come back to the psalm and read and meditate and think about the words that are here. Verses 1 through 3, I'll read these again. David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, and my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The first thing to notice here is that David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And this word for love is not the typical word for love that we find most common in the Hebrew text. This word means to have compassion. And typically, God is the subject of this verb, and He has compassion on someone else. In fact, this is the only instance of this verb where someone is said to have compassion on God. This is the kind of love that a mother would have for a baby that is needy, that is is dependent upon her. Now, as we read this psalm, we clearly see that God does not need us. He is the all-sufficient rock. He does not depend upon us in any way. We depend upon Him. So what is David trying to say when he says, I have compassion on you, my God? Well, since this verb indicates a natural bond, a, a compulsive love, an affection that comes from within, I think what what David is saying here is, I can't help but love you, O Yahweh, my strength. I can't help but love you. And he uses the name of God that he gave to Moses when he was about to intervene in in Israel's uh, history to save his people. And this is what David had seen God do throughout his own life on many occasions to intervene in history to prove that he is the God who is. The next thing we want to notice in these three verses is how David piles up military and and geographical or or geological metaphors as he describes God. And this this is what leads to our designation of God as a living and mighty rock. In addition to using the covenant name Yahweh of of God two times, David refers to God as a rock, uh, the first time being a a crag or a, a fisher. In the, in the, where a rock is split, a place to hide. God is a fortress like Masada in Israel, high up on a mountain, def, uh, impossible, inaccessible to get to, easily defendable. He is a rock. The second time, again, English doesn't have enough variety of words to describe the, or to, to label these words. The second time he says he's a rock, he's referring to a great boulder, a mountain of rock. God is a high tower. He's a military fortification. Furthermore, He's a deliverer who offers us an escape, a shield who protects us in battle. He's a refuge, a safe place to flee. Finally, David says, He's the horn, He's, my, he's the horn of my salvation. What is a horn? A horn's a bony outgrowth from the skull of an animal, right? It's a horn. But what does it refer to? The strength of that animal, a ram or a bull, powerful. All these metaphors, both from from David's military life, these pictures that he uses of the terrain where he has had to flee, they paint a concrete picture of God who is the all-sufficient 
great warrior king, the living rock of Israel who protects and delivers his servant. Therefore, the servant delights in the living and mighty rock. He's very clear. Look at those verses again in verses 1 through 3. David says, My strength, my rock, my fortress, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield. David understands the personal relationship here. He has a real connection with his God. He is depended upon and continues to depend upon the living and mighty rock and calls upon him and knows that he will be saved from his enemies. And that is a a transition, uh, leads to the next section of this psalm, the deliverance by the living and mighty rock. And, And this addresses the problem of every believer. Every one of us faces enemies, and, and it, sometimes it seems like we face, more often than not, various enemies. We have this in common with David. Our life is uncertain. Our situations, our circumstances constantly change. Our problems become lit bigger than life. And we need a stable, reliable, trustworthy God. One who is a rock, a refuge for us, a tower a hiding place, a fortress where we can find rest and strength. God is that rock. And so we see delight in the living and mighty rock, but we also see deliverance by the living and mighty rock in verses 4 to 19. David first describes his predicament, and then he describes the arrival of his deliverer, on the scene. He uses again vivid mem- imagery in order to describe his own desperate situation. In the same way in the first 3 verses he repeated words and 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 pictures, he now repeats words and pictures that describe how desperate he was. And then with almost apocalyptic language David uh, describes God in terms of a a swift army, a great beast describes natural disasters that that follow after God and come before God and put David's enemies to flight. Let's read verses 4 to 6 again. David says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to Him. I cried to my God. For help, He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Again, David uses repetition of words and ideas to communicate that he was absolutely, completely overwhelmed by his situation. His enemies are close at hand, and it seems that their victory over him is inevitable. Cords of death, I'm encompassed. Floods of ungodliness, ropes of the grave, Sheol, that, that cling to me and, and surround me. Traps and snares of death are at every turn. I'm in distress. I cry out, I need help. It's as if David is saying, I feel like I'm being buried alive in a box. I feel like I'm sinking deep into the depths of the sea. The whirlpool of my calamities is sucking me in. His only recourse And our only recourse is to cry out to God, to turn to God, to look to the living and mighty rock. And as we read, again, verses 7 through 15, as we look at these verses, we see the appearance of God on the scene. And and we really just need to kind of look at these words and, and not comment. One commentator says this, To attempt to analyze such language is to destroy its rich cadences and to violate its appeal to the imagination. David seeks at one and the same time to witness to and yet keep wrapped in mystery the awesome glory and power of God. It's for congregational singing, not for grammatical dissection. Now, what can you say in these verses except that that God kind of goes mama bear on, on the enemies of his children? He rises in anger to deal with his enemies. Verse 7, The earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling. 
and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. It's almost like David's describing God as a, a dragon. And then he begins to describe him with uh, natural disasters that follow after him, like a, a great army. Verse 8 continues, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, in verse 9, and, and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and sped upon the wings of the wind. It seems like here David is referring to a, a military uh, chariot, the, the chariot of war, the great military uh, technology of that day. But it's just really pointing to the speed at which God will arrive on the scene when he hears the cry of his child. Verse 11, he made darkness his hiding place and his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered from the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world will lay bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath of your nostrils. Darkness, light, thick clouds, hailstones, they all accompany God's arrival. Normally, God is associated with light and illumination, right? But here we have God associated with darkness, blackness. Amos reminds us that the day of the Lord is a day of darkness instead of light. God's judgment means gloom and blackness for God's enemies. So this great contrast between darkness and light shows God's nature both toward His enemies and the persecutors of His children, but also His kindness, His power, the relief, the clarity, the certainty He gives to His children. The hailstones, the lightning, the thunder, the arrows that precede God demonstrate how invincible, how irrepressible the living rock is. His supremacy and His sovereignty is unparalleled. It's unquestioned. It's obvious. The earth and its rebellious inhabitants tremble and quake in anticipation of His arrival. Now, it would seem, based on these images, that, that God had manifestly and miraculously on many occasions delivered David from his enemies. But we don't have a record of that in the Scriptures, right? God's primary working in the world and in David's deliverances is through quiet providence. Orchestration of, of ordinary circumstances. David borrowed his language from Exodus, and, and there God did manifest himself on the mountain with smoke and, and lightning. He refers back to Joshua, where in one battle there were hailstones that fell out of heaven. God used earthquakes and, and other places, but not so much in David's life. David's deliverances were typically the result of more normal circumstances, right? A stone finds its target in a critical place. David snuck out a window once. What's miraculous about that? Military strategy, bad decisions by his opponents. One time he ducked at the right time as Saul threw a, hurled a, a spear at his head. Low-hanging limbs snatched his son, and victory was won in the battle. But this doesn't make God any less powerful. It doesn't make Him any less glorious or any less awesome. God works in our lives typically by causing all things to work for our good so that we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. He doesn't need to come and manifest Himself in such miraculous ways, shocking ways. We need to pay attention to His quiet providence, to His power to work through all circumstances. 
Let me make a note about our enemies. Our great enemies are not the armies necessarily that surround us. Our great enemies are sin and death, right? And God has dealt with clarity, with certainty, with power, and with mercy and grace with those enemies. He's addressed our two great enemies through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can rest completely knowing that those two enemies have been defanged. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's taken away, God has taken away their stinger. They are no more threat to us. And so all other enemies, physical enemies, the co-worker which constantly undermines you, the relative that threatens you, the terminal illness that rocks your body or the body of a loved one, the government which threatens you or, or possibly will not provide justice for you. All of these enemies and every other enemy has been done away with. Their sway, their influence in our lives, the fact that they make us miserable in some senses, that's reality, yes. But their influence is only temporary. And in the midst of those circumstances, we can look to God who will secure us. He will help us to stand. He's simply preparing us to serve Him in this life and to serve Him in the life to come. Sooner or later, all of us will experience that victory, that deliverance, which David describes in verses 16 through 19. He, dis- he experienced it over and over again, and we, as we look back on our lives, experience it as well. Verses 16 to 19, just look at the language uh, David uses here. Verse 16, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. Verse 17, delivered me. Those who were too mighty for me, for me. Verse 18, he was my stay. Literally, he was my staff that I could lean upon. He brought me, verse 19, to a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He was not going to let us down. What a turn of events to go from verses 4 to 6 to, to these verses where David had experienced God's deliverance. And then David begins to meditate on the dealings of the living and mighty rock. The dealings of the living and mighty rock. We see this in verses 20 to 29. And, and this is really the central part of the psalm. The structure of this psalm draws our attention to this section. What is emphasized here is God's justice, not His salvific justice as we think about the fact that we're forgiven of our sins, because that's almost a misnomer, right? It's not just at all. It's not just that Christ would suffer in our place. It's not just that He would pay the penalty for our sins. It's grace. But that's not what David's talking about here. In fact, as we read this section, for instance, in verse 20, when David says, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. Do any of you stop and think, I hope not? When you read the Psalms, and especially David, but other psalmists that, that protest and, and they, they talk about their own righteousness and how they've, they've uh, been recompensed according to their uprightness, does that ever give you pause? Do you ever scratch your head and think, but David hasn't read Calvin. He didn't understand total depravity. He doesn't... Hasn't he read Romans chapter 3? There's none righteous. No, not one. How can he say that by by his righteousness, God has rewarded him? I react that way. I don't know about you. When I read words like verse 23, I was blameless before him, not a chance. Let's read these verses again, and hopefully we'll get uh, some clarity. We see the living, the, the dealings of the living and mighty rock with his children from verses 20 to 24, but then with mankind in general from verses 25 to 29. Verses 20 to 24 again. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. 
For I have kept the ways of the Lord and, the, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. What is David saying here? Uh, one commentator, Van Gimmeren, says, The triumph of, great, of faith is expressed in the realization that the Lord has been faithful. He has kept his word, and he rewards the faithful. Faith tastes the goodness, and I would add the might, of God, the living rock. The psalmist has argued that the love of God moves heaven and earth for the sake of his own. Now he instructs us, the readers, what God expects of his children. David wasn't claiming to be sinless. He was simply recalling how he had obeyed God, particularly with regard to his dealings with Saul. If you remember, David was exemplary. He submitted to the corrupt leadership of Saul, and Saul was trying to kill him. Especially when we take into account that David had the army at his disposal. He had opportunities to kill Saul, but he would not raise his hand against him, even though Samuel had already anointed him to be king. It was just a matter of time. And David didn't use the army. He didn't use his advantage to take the kingdom. He was exemplary. He was righteous in that respect. We should not associate David's affirmation of his righteousness with some kind of affirmation of perfection. We also shouldn't think of it as meritorious works. David's not saying, I deserve something from God. Because later in the psalm, we see that David clearly understands that everything comes by God's grace. It is God who enables him, who stands behind him. There is a simple biblical principle here. God delights in rewarding His children. God loves to reward His children. There's some people, at least, that I've met that really struggle with that doctrine, with that principle. They don't like the idea of rewards, which is confusing to me. Um, <laughs> praise God that He rewards obedience. Praise God that He blesses His children. I think some people approach it kind of with a communist mindset. If, if God gives favor to one over another, then that's not fair. But we need to put that aside. God blesses obedience. Not always in the way we expect. Not always in the same way with each person. Not always when we expect to be blessed. But He does. Sometimes, even often, we have to admit, the righteous do suffer. They are persecuted. Obedient saints suffer loss. They get sick. They're persecuted. But that does not mean that they do not receive blessing from God, either in this world, in the joy that we have in knowing God, or in the world to come. God's blessing doesn't, is not the same as being successful or profitable. But God rewards obedience in this life. We need to be careful about misdefining that reward and thinking that that reward must mean success. We need to keep going. Uh, in verses 25 to 29, we see that God deals in another way with mankind in general, and that as He returns in like manner, you reap what you sow. God is always just. As we look at this uh, David says, with the kind you show yourself kind, with the blameless you show yourself blameless, with the pure you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you show yourself astute or twisted, literally. Now, David draws attention to this last word because he uses the same words over and again, pure, pure, kind, kind, blameless, blameless, but with the corrupt, the crooked, you show yourself twisted. What does that mean? Well, that verse comes, or that verb comes from a, a word that means to twist or, or to wrestle. The wicked, God will wrestle to the ground. He will twist them like a pretzel. He will frustrate them and he will withstand them. And David himself had experienced this. God had allowed the wicked deeds of David to boomerang back on his head. 
the weapons he used against Uriah, God allowed to recoil and bruise David. David's sin brought havoc on David and his family and his kingdom. This verse isn't saying that God is somehow morally corrupt or morally twisted. What it's saying is, if you don't repent, if you don't respond to God in humility and repentance, He will punish you. He will allow you to suffer the consequences of your sin. Verse 27 then reminds us that of another important principle, that God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the haughty, the prideful, and the unteachable. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. I just want to quickly comment as we move on. In verse 29, David says, For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. That kind of blows a, a big hole in our, our open-door theology, right? You've heard people say, Well, I'm just waiting for an open door. Uh, what is... What does God want me to do? Uh, to reveal His will by opening a door. Well, what happens if God wants you, by faith, to kick down the door? David says, by you I can run upon a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. Sometimes God wants us to trust Him, to accomplish more than we would expect. And this verse transitions us to the next section. We've seen delight in the living and mighty rock. We've seen the deliverance of the living and mighty rock. We've seen the dealings of the living and mighty rock. And now we see the divine enablement of the living and mighty rock. In verses 30 to 45, we see the psalmist with the wind at his back. He states what God has done. And and then he lists his exploits, David's own exploits. He states again, uh, many of the images from the first section... He says, God is a refuge, He's a shield, He's a rock. And then he begins to rehearse all that God has accomplished through him. He doesn't do it in a proud way to say, look at what I've done. Let's build a building, let's build a a monument for my name. But he, he says, look at what God has done for me. Look what God has enabled me to do. He's not boasting, he's giving God credit and honor and praise. Just read with me verses 32 through 35. The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. And your right hand upholds me. And your gentleness, literally your condescension to me, your coming to me on my behalf makes me great. David understands this. He can say with the New Testament believer, what do I have? What have I done that the Lord has not given? What righteous act have I done that God himself did not animate me to do? He girds me with strength. He makes my way blameless. And again, I don't have time to get into this concept of of imputed righteousness, the fact that God gives us a righteousness that's not our own, and that's what makes us acceptable to God. But I think we shouldn't underestimate what David understood, or what Abraham understood, or what Phineas understood when they, in faith, obeyed God, and God counted it to them as righteousness. God causes us to stand. He gives strength to our hands. He lifts our arms. He condescends to us. He comes to us and makes us great. Invincible in David's situation. In the earlier part of the psalm, David records the unseen, the rarely visible, blustering glory of God as God comes to our aid. But here he gives his own perspective. What he saw happen, what it looked like to the eye. But one and the other are both God's doing. The psalmist, with the divine enablement, with God's empowerment, is unstoppable. His enemies melt before him. They neither put up a fight or try to hold out. When they see David coming with his army, they come cringing out of their fortresses, waving white flags. This is all God's doing, David says. But note verse 41. A terrifying verse. It says, They cried 
for help, but there was none to save. When they saw that the battle had turned, they looked for an ally and they could find none. And even their false repentance wouldn't save them. Verse 41, second part, even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. And that day will come for all of our enemies. For those who refuse to submit to God. Finally, in the end of this psalm, David makes a declaration about the living and mighty rock. David repeats again the language of the, of the first section. God is a rock. He is to be exalted. He is the source of salvation, both physical deliverance and pardon for sin. But then David raises two great themes. He, he talks about the nations, and he talks about the descendant, the seed of David, the greater David, the Messiah, who will sit upon David's throne forever. Let me just read this last section again, verses forty. 6 through 50. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The Lord who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you will lift me above those who rise against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations. O Lord, I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king. And shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants, or his seed, forever. David speaks of giving God glory and expressing thanks to God among all the nations. Now I believe David has in mind here the Abrahamic covenant, that God came to Abraham and said, I will make this nation a blessing to all other nations. But I think David also has in mind the the great exodus of Israel. When God brought a superpower to its knees as his people fled in fear. And he did it to bring glory to himself. When David, underst- when David stood before Goliath as a young man, he knew that much more was at stake than mano a mano, man against man, or even nation against nation. He knew that God's glory was at stake. And he said to Goliath, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. David hurls back David, um, Goliath's challenges, and he says, God will give me victory that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Certainly during David's reign, as all the regional powers and, and the superpowers that surrounded that small nation of Israel, as they looked upon what was going on there in that very strategic place, they were all thrilled that there was a civil war, that there was a conspiracy, the king's son was rebelling against the king. But God had established David, had given him victory, so that all the nations would sit up and take notice. Paul takes these verses and quotes them in Romans chapter 15 and expands them to apply to Christ, to his mission on the earth, his incarnation. Christ came certainly to fulfill promises made to the patriarchs, but he also came, as we sing, to gain his own inheritance of followers, worshipers from among the Gentiles, a harvest of disciples who would give him glory and honor and praise as the Lord of all, as the Redeemer of the whole world. And as we sing, we like David can trust in the living and mighty rock. The church can arise and put its armor on knowing that God is with us. God made promises to Israel. Those promises had to be kept. At the time, the Gentiles were far from God, alienated. But Christ came so that the gospel could be preached And God's mercy and grace can be manifested to all who will repent. And it's our privilege to take that message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus to the nations. That God may be glorified. That Christ may receive his inheritance. And David mentions himself, the descendant, the seed, the greater David, our Savior. As we take the message of the gospel Into the world, as we've seen, the world will certainly rail against us. 
When we stand firm on our convictions, we will certainly face enemies within and without. Within the church, within ourselves, we'll face doubts. But we can have great confidence that our life is hidden in Christ. He is our living rock. He is the anointed king. And when he is revealed, Paul says in Colossians, we too will be revealed with him in glory. There's so many great truths in this psalm. I'm I'm ashamed that, that we have barely touched on so many of them. God is the living rock in whom we take refuge. We can delight in him. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our salvation. He responds quickly and concretely to his child's cry for help. He's just. He delights to reward his children, but he will also reward those who rebel against him in like kind. God enables us to do far more than we could ever do on our own, and he gives us privileges and and blessings that we could never earn. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises, and he has sent his son whose kingdom is a rock. And that rock, which is uncut by human hands that that Daniel saw, it will expand throughout all the earth, and nothing will stop it. He is the rock. Again, to borrow another line from another wonderful hymn that was cleft, wounded for us. And may we find ourselves hidden in Him, even as the world rails against us, even as the world attacks us, as the world, the physical world around us, around us trembles and, and shakes and, and seems to even melt away. May we hide ourselves in Christ by faith and rise up and by faith honor Him and bring glory to Him as we bring the word of Christ to the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for this truth that gives us strength, that firms our steps. Lord, help us to trust in you. Uh, forgive us for our many times where we've turned and, and failed and, and, and disappointed you. And Lord, as we look at our situation, as we look at the world around us, and even the people around us who have disappointed us, may we find our confidence in you. We thank you that you are a living rock. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here is not found in Christ, is not hidden in Christ, that they would turn to you, that they would know that you will never disappoint them. For you are a God who delights to come to the aid of those who, in repentance and humility, turn to you. We praise you and thank you for your grace and that grace that we've experienced in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.